I'm Frederick Gerten, and I'm the filmmaker. And I'm Leilani Farha, and I'm the advocate. And this is Pushback Talks, and we are back. We are out in the air, Leilani. And today we're going to meet an amazing person, the global economic correspondent of the New York Times, Peter S. Goodman. I mean, that title is like, wow, it's cool. And uh, so, Peter, welcome to Pushback Talks. Thanks so much for having me. And you are here because you've been writing an amazing book that both me and Leilani have read. Normally, we don't read books because it's too much. <laughs> but, <laughs> but this time, we actually did it. And uh, it's the well, Davos. Bravo for that. <laughs> Davos Man, the billionaires who devoured the world. Devoured, no. I didn't know. How devoured. the billionaires devoured How the world. How the billionaires devoured the world. <laughs> So the billionaires are doing something to the world, Peter. They certainly are. Uh, they are uh, dominating our global economy, uh, taking a system that, you know, was never perfect. Uh, we could always find things to complain about uh, in terms of the equity. Uh, but from 1945 till about the mid-70s was actually doing a fairly good job in most major economies of creating new opportunities for uh, huge numbers of people. Now, you know, I don't want a time machine back to 1975. We've made a lot of progress in all sorts of areas that we want to hang on to. Uh, but in one key regard, that period is special in that uh, the gains of capitalism, the gains of economic growth were by and large transferred to working people uh, commensurate with productivity. People, everybody got a piece of the action. Wasn't perfectly fair, it wasn't ideal. But in that key regard, there's something that we need to get back to. Because in the years since, the world's most powerful people, the people I call Davos Man, this billionaire set that operates across jurisdictions, uh, challenging their uh, allegiance to any particular country, people who can literally hire lobbyists, lawyers, uh, tax accountants, you know, by the dozen in multiple jurisdictions at once, have rigged the system so that the money now flows overwhelmingly into their own coffers. Hmm. Interesting, Peter, because I mean, I did this film Push, where Leilani is the the superhero, hmm. and and um, for us, that making that film was also a journey into you know understanding the setup and understanding that uh, the the financial crisis 2008 kind of created this super landlord Blackstone. Uh, they really did things. And I remember we had a screening at the Castro in San Francisco, that amazing theater, yeah. uh, sold out a lot of people. And uh, a young lady came up to me after the film and said, Frederick, I feel less lonely now because now mm. I know it's not my fault. That, that it's so hard to live in this city. And actually, when I talked to Leilani now, after reading your book, she said the same. I feel less lonely now because now I have Peter S. Goodman at New York Times telling the same story. Isn't it like that, Leilani? That's a wonderful story. I'm sorry, go yeah. ahead. <laughs> no, that's, um, that is absolutely my experience of reading your book, Peter. Um, I have to say, I, in a, if I had to give a little you know, one-liner about your book, compulsive and compulsory reading. Hmm. Um, and for me, I mean, I'm Leilani Farha. I'm an advocate. I'm working here from my basement. I was the UN rapporteur on the right to housing, but that even 
that position itself, people look at a little bit strangely. So when I would talk about this stuff, especially as a, I think actually there's a, a gender dimension here. Sure. As a youngish seeming woman weighing <laughs> in on big finance and saying these guys are owning the world, they are running the world. People look at me like I'm crazy often. And your book is like all the details, all the proof, all the evidence of what's actually happening around the globe. So I, I can I, I have to say I it was an amazing read. It was a total page oh, turner. So I was like every page I'm like, what's next? What's happening next? And and a huge contribution, in my opinion, a huge contribution. So thank Oh you. well thank you so much. You, you know, I, I think it's interesting uh, that you say, not to put words in your mouth, but it's like it reveals this thing that's been going on that we've all sensed. You know, I think, you know, it's important to note, I'm not laying out a kind of puppeteer conspiracy. Um, it's not as if, you know, there's some dark room. I mean, there is the World Economic Forum at Davos, which plays an important <laughs> role. But, you know, even there, it's not like there's some master detailed plan. All this stuff has actually happened in plain view, but it's happened so steadily and gradually. I mean, it's a little bit like climate change, right? Like, like we, we can, if we're scientists and we're actually measuring water levels by the millimeter, then we're paying attention. If we're looking at thousandth of degrees of temperature change over time, fine. But it's not until there's a big storm where suddenly everybody's basement's flooded, where people are having to go to high ground, where people are hungry in places where there used to be plenty of food, where we say, well, hold on, you know, what's happened here? And we've had a series of crises in recent years between the global financial crisis, uh, the, the austerity that's been imposed uh, in, in much of the globe to ensure that, you know, the richest people don't have to pay, but ordinary people who actually depend upon government services do. And now, of course, the pandemic. And so, you know, all of this stuff that I'm tracing in this book has happened in plain view. You just have to put it together to, to get the picture. So I'm, I'm really glad to hear that it's resonated in that way. And a lot of these, I mean, you are pointing out, you're focusing on five big billionaires. Uh, they could have, I guess it could have been five different ones also. Definitely. But I mean, these are really interesting. But uh for us, you you focus a lot about Blackstone and, and their CEO and founder, Steve Schwartzman. Uh, when we started to do push, you know, Leilani and I started to talk to each other. We, we didn't know anything about Blackstone. They were totally flying under the radar for, for a very long time. And now you put a lot of focus on them. So... Are they have they changed now, or um, is this? Uh, do they like this attention? <laughs> uh, I don't think they like this attention. I mean, I think Leilani can tell you about her own experiences uh, in terms of you know their attempts to silence her, and in my own dealings uh, with uh, Blackstone's communications people. You know, I should say Schwartzman never talked to me. Uh, I spent three days a few years ago in Beijing at this very high level conference where. Uh, Schwartzman and I both went off with uh, actually something like five heads of state, uh, other billionaires, including Pierre Omidyar, uh, the eBay founder. Uh, we all went off to the Great Hall of the People for an hour with Xi Jinping. I mean, this was really quite 
quite an experience. And I was able to see Schwartzman up close. He doesn't like to talk to the press. He wasn't particularly interested in talking to me. Uh, he did bring me along with a contingent of people to go visit his uh, Schwartzman Scholars Program at Tsinghua University, which is you know, the, one of the most prestigious campuses in Beijing, in a place that he's used to you know, highlight his cooperation between the U.S. and China while he's vacuuming up investment from Chinese sovereign wealth funds, uh, while he's uh, pushing out uh, his own investments in in China. So, you know, this is not somebody who likes to engage uh, with the world other than uh, on his own terms. And he likes to project this sense, and this, this I argue in the book is, is, you know, quintessential Davos man behavior. He likes to project his own undertakings as like a gift to the world. Like it's not enough that he's making huge amounts of money. And, you know, sorry, we should back up for a second. Steve Schwartzman is the world's largest private equity magnate. He's a huge uh, real estate investor. He's worth roughly uh, $30 billion. Uh, and, you know, you guys ran into him, I gather, in terms of his investments in Europe and especially in, in Sweden, where he uh, opportunistically uh, entered the market after what we now call the sovereign debt crisis and uh, picked up huge uh, swaths of affordable housing, jacked up the rents, uh, evicted people, cut maintenance. And what I discovered in, in, in doing the book was, you know, this is his template, right? I mean, oh, I didn't discover this. I mean, other people have written about this as well. But the foreclosure crisis in the States, you know, he goes in uh, and spends hundreds of millions of dollars buying up uh, distressed uh, real estate in the U.S., and then, you know, flips all this real estate for a tremendous profit, which, you know, I think for those of us who are accustomed to capitalism would say, well, you know, that's how it works. People with money go find stuff to buy, then they sell it to somebody else for more money. But in his memoir and in his public speeches, he goes on about how, you know, this wasn't about the money. This was this act of civic virtue. We went into places where houses had been left to the elements with, you know, weeds overgrowing the lawns and rodents running around and we fixed them up and re, you know, fresh coats of paint. And as I say in the book, like, you know, you can almost hear the soundtrack for this pleasing, you know, life insurance commercial with some adorable golden retriever puppy romping around on a freshly cut lawn with a toddler. Uh, you know, the reality is he starts this thing called Invitation Homes, which is an invitation for people to pay uh, exorbitant rent, people who don't have the money to just easily pick up and move somewhere else, uh, also not by accident. I mean, he's very savvy at finding people where there's engaging in transactions where essentially there's a, a clear power imbalance. You know, he's got the money. He's dealing with people who are just kind of making it paycheck to paycheck. They can't just go out and go rent some other apartment and come up with a security deposit. So he jacks up their rent uh, to levels at which they can just manage, but he's getting the maximum. He, he cuts maintenance. Uh, it suddenly becomes impossible to get hold of anybody if you have a plumbing problem and an electrical problem. And this is the template that we've seen around the world, which is how you guys got on the trail, as I understand the story. Yeah, I mean, we actually, I mean, we started off with Blackstone buying a lot of foreclosed housing in the US and in Spain and in on Ireland. The Sweden story, we didn't even know about, but we just, Lilani was invited to Sweden and we did like, oh, so are they, maybe we should have a check. <laughs> and then we found this story. So they've been totally flying under the radar. And since then, we've been, we've been going to country to country to show the film. And we always ask people, do you know if Blackstone is in your country? And people most of the time say, no, no, they're not here. And they are always there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, 
absolutely true. They're everywhere. And this whole uh, model that they use and that the other billionaires use, the extractive industry model using finance to extract more wealth is ubiquitous. It's just, it is the way it is. And in the housing world, it is the model now. So the damage that Blackstone has done isn't just within their own holdings. It's that they've created, established a model that is accepted. And all these other asset management firms and private equity and hedge funds and etc. are using the same model. And so the damage is so huge. It's Blackstone is everywhere, but the model is everywhere. And this idea that they are saving the world. I mean, that's how they responded to me when I wrote what are called the Blackstone letters. When I wrote to Blackstone to say, hey, I think you're violating human rights here and you can't keep doing this. They replied and just said, and and you put that in your book, what are you talking about? We are providing housing for needy families and we have saved the world. We're the solution. We're the good guys. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, that that is something that they say again and again. And, you know, I'm not even attempting to demonize Blackstone or any other uh, company controlled by some billionaire. I mean, it seems safe to say that if we live in the market system, and the market system has, you know, all sorts of benefits, right? It's a very good way to find out what a fair price is if it's a real market with the regulator ensuring that there's transparency uh, and everybody gets a shot, then the market system is, is, is really quite, quite vibrant. Uh, and it's a tremendous source of innovation. And we should be grateful that the market system has provided all sorts of you know, modern innovation. But we've got to have democracy. I mean, we can't be in a situation where the Blackstones of the world, you know, the Steve Schwartzman of the world can take the winnings from their business ventures and then use them to warp the rules of our democracies and essentially undermine uh, processes that have put in place. I mean, Sweden, you know, I think it's shocking for a North American audience to, you know, confront the reality that this bastion of social democracy, you know, everybody knows, like, oh, 500 days of paid family leave when you have a child and, you know, the hospitals are open to everyone and education's free. And I mean, I've had serious economists say to me, boy, if you're born in Sweden, you have won at life. Uh, and that's that's our image. And and let, let me let me be careful. Like in a lot of ways, that's actually true. And there there's a lot to the Swedish model that is quite vibrant. But you know, Blackstone goes in and they clearly undermine uh, the notion of affordable housing. Uh, and in so doing, they contribute to the same sort of breakdown in faith in leadership in authorities, in the whole notion of collectivism that's at the center of, of, of the Nordic model. You know, the understanding that we all get something out of society. Uh, and they, they, it, it's a violation of the concept of society. I mean, I, I was really struck as I spoke to uh, people who'd been living in uh, these Blackstone-owned uh, housing projects on the outskirts of Stockholm, you know, which has seen, yeah. I think, also shocking to people who don't know Sweden, has seen, you know, a housing bubble, the likes of which, I mean, we're talking San Francisco levels, you know, beyond London, New York. I mean, there's less affordable housing in Stockholm than there is, you know, in that bastion of, of easy rent uh, apartments, New York City. I mean, that that's a stunning thing, you know, and that, that did not happen by accident. So, 
you know, these people who've been living in what were once, you know, modest middle class homes who suddenly, you know, discover that, no, they're actually living in financial assets that are being traded by these entities. They're not called Blackstone, by the way. They always have some, you know, local name uh, to kind of shield scrutiny. Uh, And suddenly their home where they've raised children, where they've lived their lives is is revealed to be this kind of security, a chip by by which, you know, people like Steve Schwartzman are making the next, you know, billion dollars. And that that has a just a kind of debilitating. It's like an existential crisis for people to learn that the system that they've had faith in is really not built for their interests. It's built for interests who are far away and much more powerful. Hmm. Well, Lani, uh, democracy, is that the answer? <laughs> well, I'm interested to explore what it means to say that democracy or a return to a kind of democracy might be the answer. What are the elements in that? Of course, I'm a human rights lawyer, and so what I am wondering always, my pursuit is how do we or shouldn't we use human rights and the legal obligations states have committed to and made as a way to ensure capitalism doesn't run amok, to ensure a more tame capitalism that, that includes social well-being and economic well-being as part of the way it runs, the way it goes. So I was wondering, Peter, if you had ever turned your mind to that, because you do say in the book at the end, in the sort of solutions part, that part of the problem with capitalism right now is it's not, I mean, you don't use these words, and my apologies, you're far more eloquent, but, you know, part of the problem with capitalism right now is that it's not being regulated, it's not being tamed or sufficiently regulated to ensure good outcomes. Capitalism speed, we call them, or steroids. On steroids, that's right, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, And so I wonder about the the power of human rights to do what you think needs to be done. Well, first of all, I think we need to actually take back this idea of capitalism because I think we've absorbed in most major economies this idea that what we've got, that's capitalism. And if you're against it, you know, then you're a Bolshevik. Uh, What we have is not capitalism. What we have in most major economies, certainly in in my own, in in the U.S., is a kind of uh, welfare for billionaires, you know, a a, a kind of, you know, bailout mentality where, you know, therefore, whatever ideology works to get the next rescue crafted their way, they want free markets when they're in a position to dominate those markets. Free market is usually like a term they throw around to defend themselves against a regulator who might look askance at their monopoly power, uh, at their you know tax avoidance strategies. And then the rest of us get rugged individualism. That's not capitalism. You know, capitalism requires a, a, a market participant who is governed by a regulator who's making sure that there's fairness and, and transparency. So I, I do think we need to reclaim that idea along. You know, I've spent a lot of my career uh, going back to the dot-com bubble, where I remember, you know, I would write about the telecom deregulation in the States, and suddenly cable companies were rebuilding the old Ma Bell monopoly 
uh, in the states. And if you questioned that, if you asked, well, you know, how does the consumer benefit from, you know, now once again having to deal with one company, I'd be told by lobbyists, you know, oh, you're anti-business. Really? So being pro-business is accepting that whatever the monopolists want to do is great. And anybody who asks a critical question is anti. I mean, I'm pro-business. I'm for small businesses. I'm for, you know, multiple participants. And I'm for people who are at the center of our democracies applying their power to influence the nature of our markets so that more people actually benefit. That's not, you know, that doesn't turn us into Venezuela. I mean, Davos man would have us believe that we either accept the status quo where there's tremendous inequality, huge numbers of people left out, can't afford drugs, can't afford to send their kids to school. Uh, they're one in the States, you know, you're one emergency away from turning the lights off in your house and sleeping under a highway overpass, uh, you know, and either we accept that Davos man tells us, or, well, we might as well be Venezuela. And, you know, we got to give up Uber and Google and central air conditioning. We can go dumpster diving for our dinner. You know, that's not how life works. And the Nordics actually prove that, right? I mean, the Nordic countries are full of people who will say, listen, you know, we don't protect jobs, uh, but we protect workers. Uh, we, we have safeguards. And then we let the market determine, you know, the, the inefficient companies should disappear. Companies with better ideas should triumph over others and people will lose their jobs. But that's not going to be like some sort of death sentence. Like you'll get some help from unemployment. You get trained to do something else. If you need help with your housing, we'll take care of that because we need everybody to participate. And the, the tragedy of a situation where companies like Blackstone have turned, you know, real estate into a kind of casino where only a handful of people win is it's it's undermined that kind of faith, which has created an opening for, you know, extreme right wing parties like the Sweden Democrats who are now running around saying, you know, why should we pay taxes for immigrants who are never going to going to work like that idea only works politically if huge numbers of people have already experienced a loss of faith in the society that they thought they were living in. Mm. Uh, Oxfam the other week published a report uh, saying that the world's billionaires, your friends, the friends in your book, they have doubled their their wealth during the pandemic. So the the richest people on the right. planet has doubled their wealth. Have they? Have they? I mean, normally we say we should reward people who do good stuff, who who invent new things, or so. Have they brought something new to the table for the world to? To make that all the I mean, money? they're the beneficiaries of the rescues launched by just about every major economy during the first wave of the pandemic when the markets were recoiling in horror. Uh, and central bankers and treasuries uh, put a lot of money on the line to boost asset prices and billionaires own assets. So, you know, not to denigrate. Look, Jeff Bezos is worth $200 billion. We can argue about whether anybody should be worth $200 billion. Clearly, Jeff Bezos is a very bright guy, really hard worker, uh, recognized a tremendous uh, opportunity to alter our shopping experience in a way in which consumers really appreciate, right? Like we all enjoy the convenience of click here and something shows up at our door. And during the pandemic, that probably saved a lot of people's lives and allowed those of us lucky enough to work, you know, via Zoom, who don't have to go work in a slaughterhouse or empty a bedpan in a in a senior home, you know, that allowed us a, a, a certain uh, degree of, of normalcy. Thanks for that. You should be rewarded for that. 
but not to the extent at which the people working in your warehouses are, are actually uh, having to choose between their paychecks and their health. You know, it's not that Bezos is prospering while his warehouse workers are prospering not so much that's the problem. It's that he's prospering because the people who work in his warehouses are prospering. And it's the same, you know, Schwartzman's billions. Uh, I mean, he's he's actually said publicly the pandemic has been this wonderful opportunity to jack up people's rents. Uh, people are helpless. Uh, we know that Schwartzman's made a huge amount of money on investments in healthcare in the U.S. and especially in emergency rooms. Hey, that's a good place to be. A casino operator will tell you that you make money in a darkened room where people don't know what time it is and they're drinking a lot. Uh, well, in an emergency room, people are not always, you know, in the best position to ask, you know, what's going to happen uh, in terms of my health insurance policy and who exactly is treating me, they, they're going to sign the paperwork that's given to them so they can go get, get uh, assistance. And people like Schwartzman have exploited that fact uh, to jack up profits at the direct expense of the resiliency of the healthcare system uh, for, for everyone else. So, you know, you look at something like the 10 richest people in the world have doubled uh, their, their wealth in the course of the pandemic. And it's clear that that is not an accident. That has happened because they had already put in place a system uh, that ensured that every time something bad happened, someone would proffer a huge rescue and they could use their lobbyists to influence those rescues to ensure that the asset holders you know, got the lion's share. And that's exactly what's happened during the course of the pandemic. You, you said something good here. I mean, you said you mentioned the, the lobbyists and and the image they are fighting for. I mean, Davos is a, is a place where also gives these people uh, uh, the, the light they want to have. Uh, Leilani, you you were in love with this line, the cosmic cosmic lie, lie. <laughs> yeah. used throughout well, yes um, maybe Peter can explain to our listeners what the cosmic lie is I think this is a huge contribution that this book makes uh, to this world because if you don't understand the cosmic lie then you can't address what's going on so please explain oh, the bet. cosmic lie so the cosmic lie is this idea that Davos man has insinuated into our political discourse and our reality that when we organize our economies around uh, making it easier for the people who already have all the wealth to get more of it, when we cut their taxes, when we deregulate, that this will spur you know, innovation and growth and that will trickle down in the form of higher wages and better opportunities for everyone else, something that in reality has happened zero times. And you know, we try it again and again. And part of the problem is that in our in our uh, media discourse, we're you know tempted to ask, well, you know, well, why do people still believe in this lie? You know, if it's clearly a lie, well, you know, no one actually believes in this. Or, I mean, I think Davos Man's skill, uh, one of Davos Man's great attributes, is the ability to kind of make the narrative true in his own mind. Uh, and we see this again and again at places like the World Economic Forum. We see this in the halls of Congress in, in, in Washington and in uh, legislatures uh, around the world, including in the UK where I was living when I wrote this book. But, you know, Macron uh, comes in uh, as the president of France 
And the first thing he does, not by accident, because his campaign was underwritten by people like Bernard Arnault, who you know is sometimes the world's wealthiest person, depending on depending on fluctuations in stock prices. This is the guy behind you know Louis Vuitton, Dom Perignon. Uh, he owns uh, Chateau Yquem, the famous uh, uh, Sauternes. Uh, winery, and he, you know, he loves to wander around, waxing poetically about wine and playing the piano and finding, you know, new ways to not pay his taxes. And he underwrote Macron along with a bunch of other billionaires in France, uh, understanding that Macron, who's a consummate Davos man, I, I call him a Davos man collaborator. Uh, he's a guy who you know worked at Rothschild, the giant investment bank. He's very comfortable in Davos. He speaks perfect English. He projects this sense that France is over its days of being anti-business. Has and you know to his credit has talked about how we're going to deal with long-term unemployment, which is a serious problem in France, and has grounded the idea that a strong France, an economically strong France, will strengthen the European Union at a time when you know Brexit has hurt European unity. But the first thing he does is he cuts taxes on the richest people in France. And then he follows that up uh, by uh, increasing gas taxes uh, and probably not really understanding, I'm, I'm willing to believe, you know, his own country. Because if you live in Paris, you know, which is a city with fantastic public transportation, you can get around quite easily on a bicycle, on the metro, on the bus. The rest of the country actually looks a lot more like the United States than people might think. You know, people have to drive to get to work. There are a lot of people working these, you know, crappy temporary contract jobs. Full-time work has been downgraded to temporary jobs. And as one person put it to me, you know, we're just essentially going to work to buy gas so we can put it in the car and burn it to get to work. I mean, that's that's our life. And Macron comes in and he he cuts the wealth taxes, he increases the gas taxes, and the result is the conflagration that we now know as, you know, the gilets jaunes, the yellow vest movement, where the pretty much every working person in France puts on a yellow construction vest and goes out and says, hey, this is going to play really well with your friends at Davos at the World Economic Forum. Oh, you're saving the world through, you know, addressing climate change. We're dealing with, we're not dealing with the end of the world, we're dealing with the end of the month. And Macron, of course, has to walk this back. But, you know, this is just another example among many of the cosmic lie. And the cosmic lie is alluring because it's great for the donor class. It's a fairy tale that politicians can trot out as justification for rewarding the people who actually underwrite the camp, their campaigns. And, you know, what they want, and we saw this, you know, with Trump in in particular, who, you know, was fulminating against, you know, monkey wrenching globalization, attacking the liberal world order, pulling the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Agreement, saying all of these incredibly offensive, racist, misogynistic things. And yet Davos man focused like a laser on the thing that Trump could actually deliver. And that was this enormous package of tax cuts. And so people like Steve Schwartzman continued to support him, uh, would actually apologize for him, would wander around telling people, you know, there's not a racist bone in his body, despite all the evidence to the country. The cosmic lie <laughs> is the central organizing principle by which Davos man convinces us the government is not necessary. Government is full of bureaucrats. We're wasting our hard-earned dollars. And if you let Davos man have more of it, we'll all benefit. Yeah. 
Just a detail, I, you know, Steve Schwartzman actually got one of the finest medals in France of another president, Sarkozy. So he's like the knight of something in France. So he's, he's, a, he's a big f- friend of France. Yeah. I, uh, just on the cosmic lie, it's so in the housing world in which I operate, unfortunately, this idea is so entrenched. It's lower property taxes, make money super cheap so that these guys can come in and either purchase or build and solve the housing crisis. And we know that what they actually do is they take the money and they run. They build, they may build, but what they're building is not affordable social housing, ho- housing for those who are most in need. But they they use th- that cosmic lie is so entrenched in how housing is dealt with. It's it, that's one for me. One of the strengths of this book that I, I, I now am literally Peter. I'm going to be bringing your book to all of these meetings I go oh, to I'm and so say, to "Excuse that. me, like here is the cosmic lie, and you're you're um, proliferating this lie." Sorry, Frederick. Go go ahead. No, no, no. I I I, I, I like where you're going. So, but I just want to bring in another cosmic liar <laughs> into <laughs> to the game uh, because there we have Blackstone. But then there's BlackRock, mm. and BlackRock has been kind of been portrayed as the, a friendlier version of Blackstone, uh, more environmental, responsible, and blah blah. You know, and and I hear a lot of people talking about that. And, and then Blackstone, BlackRock, <laughs> has been giving a lot of responsibilities here in Europe for uh, Leilani. You know a lot about this. Well, um, and the book the book details a lot of this. I have to say, when when the pandemic struck, and I noticed, of course, all the central banks, regional banks, lining up monetary policy and basically quantitative easing, or you know, pu- putting money back into the economy. I was trying to track it and follow it, and I noticed with I live in Canada. I noticed that BlackRock was being hired by all of these governments and banks to help set monetary policy. And I'm thinking, excuse me, BlackRock that has an interest in like every publicly listed, every listed company, BlackRock with tentacles everywhere that is really working for the shareholder. We're allowing BlackRock to be the consultant to all these governments. So I say these things and people think I'm crazy and who, what does she know from her bunker? But maybe you can talk a little bit about the role of BlackRock with governments and and what what they what they've been up to. Yeah, um, I mean, I think BlackRock is an institution that we all need to understand a lot better than we do. I mean, Bill Cohen is a former investment banker turned journalist. Once referred to Larry Fink as he's like the Wizard of Oz. You know, he's the guy behind the curtain. He's someone who has been under the radar for many years. He's the world's largest asset manager. So he manages $10 trillion in investments. A lot of this is passively invested in index funds. He's very effectively uh, vacuumed up pension funds from around the world, university endowments. And he runs a whole series of of investments. He's got exchange-traded funds, these sort of mutual fund-like instruments made up of baskets of stocks. And because he controls so much money, 
he's been able to track the flows of money, and he's a real kind of tech nerd. Uh, he lost a job early in his career at First Boston, where he actually uh, helped pioneer the mortgage-backed security because of a, a, a data entry error, a, a, a kind of problem in his model, and there was a big jump in interest rates that he wasn't expecting, cost the company like $100 million. He was disgraced. So since then, he spent a lot of time on modeling and technology, and he's built up this product that's now uh, purchased by funds that collectively control $20 trillion, $20 trillion worth of assets. It's called Aladdin. Uh, I mean, what an ironic name. It's supposed to give these guys, I mean, it, it didn't predict the global financial crisis, but it's supposed to give everybody a, a view in real time, an alert system of you know changes that should concern us in the movements of money, uh, interest rate increases, you know geopolitical problems, w- whatever. And so people pay good money, trusting that Larry Fink supposedly knows more about flows of capital th- than anybody else. So not by accident, after the 2008 financial crisis, he's hired on to essentially be Uncle Sam's chief financial advisor, and then he repeats the trick in the bailouts of uh, the first part of the pandemic, where he's his company, BlackRock, is hired to determine which securities the Federal Reserve will buy to bolster the market. Now, I think, Leilani, you are not alone in decrying a, a enormous potential conflict of interest, because, you know, first of all, BlackRock controls 5% of something like 95% of all the stocks that make up the S&P 500. I mean, this is, as I say in the book, like the whole notion that we're supposed to look to Davos man to save us is kind of tragically hilarious because, you know, the World Economic Forum operates under the mantra committed to improving the state of the world. And members of the forum, like Larry Fink, are, of course, the greatest beneficiaries of the status quo. They have every incentive to perpetuate the status quo. And they use this idea of stakeholder capitalism, this idea that, you know, Milton Friedmanism, where companies are just supposed to maximize uh, shareholder returns, and through that, you know, the markets will will, will do their magic. Uh, no, that's over. Now they're catering to stakeholders, labor, the environment, society in general, local communities. Fink has been front and center pushing this idea. And, and I, I argue in the book that that's, that's really a kind of prophylactic against uh, people wielding democracy to impose rules that would alter the status quo, redistribution of, of capital. So Fink comes in in March of 2020. He once again gets the gig to determine what the Treasury is, I'm sorry, what the Fed is going to buy. Investors understand that a lot of that money is going to end up in BlackRock's own exchange-traded funds. So they start putting their money in ahead, realizing that those funds are going to go up. They do. Fink gets more. Now, that itself is not such a big deal for a company that controls $10 trillion in assets. But the value of seeing behind the curtain at the Fed that, you know, it's hard to put a price tag on. And we've subsequently learned from the contracts released by the Fed that while BlackRock makes this big deal of fending off accusations of conflict of interest by saying, no, there's a clear barrier, there's clear separation, our people who are working for clients, they're in a whole separate part of the operation. It turns out they can send people over to the Fed side of the curtain, then they can bring them back to BlackRock's normal profit-making channels after a two-week cooling-off period. I mean, that's just laughable. 
In this podcast, uh, we earlier had a guest called Sarah Chase, who was an, a correspondent in Afghanistan. She wrote a book called Thieves of State uh, about corruption in, in several countries around the world. But her latest book is on corruption in America. And she talks a lot about the kleptocratic networks. And it seems like what you're describing now with BlackRock and Blackstone and and all these these very close relations with the politics and and, this, and, and institutions are it seems very corrupt. <laughs> I mean, most of what I write about in my book is flatly legal. I mean, these guys are geniuses at manipulating the democratic system so that they can do what they want. I mean, everything that I've just told you about Larry Fink, you know, that happened straight up in public view through the processes of of, of uh, uh, review. Uh, the contracts were publicized. I mean, one of the things that's kind of amazed me uh, last year at Davos, uh, Mark Benioff, who's the CEO of a big Silicon Valley software company called Salesforce, actually said CEOs are the heroes of the pandemic. And he said, you know, the government didn't <laughs> save you. We saved you. We gave you vaccines and credit to stave off bankruptcy. And we did it not for profit, he said, but to save the world. And the astonishing thing about this, um, and Benioff is a, excuse me, Benioff is a complex character who actually does run a lot of uh, philanthropic enterprises. Uh, he did put his own money into uh, a San Francisco ballot initiative that jacked up taxes for companies like his own to fund uh, services for homeless people. He took a stand against the state of Indiana when they passed a law that would have discriminated against LGBTQ people, uh, threatened to pull uh, investment out of the state. I mean, he's a guy who does walk the walk uh, more than most. But, you know, a in a couple of years where his company has made billions of dollars uh, in profits, he has paid the modest sum of zero in federal taxes, flatly legal. You know, he's exploited these loopholes that were put in place by the Clinton Treasury that allows uh, American companies to transfer their intellectual property somewhere else. You know, Ireland is a popular place and then lease the use of that intellectual property back to their main business in the States and set those terms so high that on paper they're not making any money at all and paying profits accordingly. I mean, you could say, you know, Benioff would be a fool to not avail himself of, of that loophole. But, you know, it's worse than that. You know, he he's a member of the Business Roundtable, which is this uh, lobbying organization in Washington, uh, once headed by Jamie Dimon, who's another character in my book, the, the CEO of, of J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, he's part of uh, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. I mean, these are entities that have lobbied aggressively for things like the Trump tax cuts. So, you know, this culture of corruption, it's happening in, in this is not like, Greedy CEOs with suitcases full of cash, you know, buying off corrupt leaders. Somewhere. This is greedy CEOs, you know, holding fundraisers that we can all see with our own eyes. This is greedy CEOs going to Davos and pontificating about how they're our saviors and we can count on the billionaires to solve all of our problems, which is, you know, just another way of... Um, of selling us the cosmic lie and telling us that we don't need to regulate and we don't need to collect taxes, we can see it all. Leilani, it seems like, it, I mean, when you read Peter's book, it's like this feeling of there is a little group of guys who kind of 
run the world, control the world, and extract values from everywhere. Mm-hmm. How do you see this, Leilani? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And and the book is really good at, at giving you a sense of the world in which they operate. And they all know each other and they're all trading assets back and forth. And, you know, this company was once owned by uh, BlackRock and then it's going to be invested in by Blackstone later. And, you know, it's 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 mind-boggling. And they all live... I mean, <laughs> we had on, an, on another podcast, um, Aaron Glantz, sure. who wrote the book Homewreckers, yeah. And... Uh, you know, he talks about how they all, half of these guys live in the same building on Park Avenue, referenced in your book as well. And Park, it's, yeah. No, Aaron's that's book right. was very useful to me. That, that's a great book and people should read it. It is, yeah. Yeah, it's, um, so I mean, that that club is, that it's part of what makes, all of what you've just said actually around how legal everything is, how they're just availing themselves of the laws actually. It's part of what makes it so difficult to bring this down because they 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 always have that response sorry folks but i'm i'm well within legislation here and um i mean there's a number of things that make it so hard to bring this down you had mentioned i want to go back a little bit if you don't mind frederick and and peter but you had mentioned um um uh, stakeholder capitalism and um it, for me, it's so troubling because one of the real central things about human rights is that it's about human beings. And in order for governments to do human rights properly, uh, whether it's local government or national level government, they have to be um, meeting with everyday people and ensuring that the decisions they're making, um, that they have a say in the decisions that are being made about their lives. And stakeholder capitalism is a way for these guys to say that they're kind of doing what human rights says that you should do, right? right? They're saying, oh, yeah, we're talking to unions, we're talking to tenants and tenants associations and et cetera. And um, it's, of course, that's all window dressing. It's and it's not done properly. It's not done. It's actually not done. Um, and so anyway, only to say there's all these threads that make it so difficult to bring this stuff down. Frederick. No, I just wanted to add, uh, I mean, we, we've been talking a lot about uh, Blackstone buying into an oat milk company here in right. my town, OT. Right. And it's, I mean, and that's a company that sells themselves as being extremely planet friendly. And they, and they claim that they kind of, by letting Blackstone in, they actually change Blackstone, which I don't really believe. But what I'm thinking of both BlackRock and Blackstone is that they're so big, so they're actually sitting in boards of thousands of companies. So actually, if they would like to save the planet, or if they would push for, for worker safety, they could do it because they're actually sitting on a lot of power in, in a lot of companies. But they don't do that. That's kind of... Well, Fink certainly claims to have that power. Fink sort of talks both ways, right? If you, if you pin him down, he'll say, well, actually, you know, 75% of my funds are passive, meaning they're just in giant index funds where, oh, you want to buy the S&P 500? Then you have to buy shares of 500 different companies, whoever they are and whatever they're doing. Though at the same time, every year, and he recently uh, put out you know his most recent version of the shareholder, this letter to CEOs, where he has said, you know, if you don't get right with climate change, the market will punish you and withhold capital. He has threatened to use uh, votes 
to uh, ensure that management's put in place that's friendly to his ideas about climate change. He gets a lot of ink, and now he's actually getting a lot of pushback from the right. So people are throwing around this term woke capitalism uh, to accuse people like Larry Fink of, you know, taking his eye off the ball of shareholder maximization, and, which I, I'm convinced is totally validating to Larry Fink. Like Larry Fink and the other proponents of stakeholder capitalism love that they're being attacked by the right for being woke capitalists because it validates that they're actually doing the things that they're not actually doing. Because in fact, Larry Fink has funneled $15 billion in capital to Saudi Aramco to help them build a natural gas pipeline. He's one of the largest, his company, BlackRock, controls huge shares in JBS, this Brazilian meat packer that's clear-cutting the Amazon. Um, I have this whole story in, in my book about how you know Larry Fink, in the midst of the pandemic, is squeezing Argentina in the midst of crisis where poverty's on the rise, the government doesn't have money for basic services, and Larry Fink is heading the largest, most powerful group of bondholders demanding an extra, you know, several pennies on a dollar in debt repayment on the bonds, knowing that they're going to be debt workouts with developing countries around the globe. I mean, in places like Zambia, Ghana, Pakistan, they're actually cutting healthcare services in the middle of the pandemic because they have to prioritize paying back the bonds to Davos man. And at the head of that movement is Larry Fink. And also the environmental organizations have checked on, on BlackRock and found that they are not using their influence to, to push the right things. That's, uh, I've seen a report around that. That wraps up the first part of our conversation with author and New York Times journalist Peter Goodman. We'll be back next week with the second part of that conversation, where Peter, Frederick and I will discuss how the pandemic has been used to make the ultra-wealthy even wealthier. Peter's book... Davos Man, How the Billionaires Devoured the World, is available online and in stores now. It's a must-read if you want to understand who owns the world. See you next week for more with Peter Goodman on Pushback Talks. Pushback Talks is produced by WG Film. To support the podcast, become a patron by going to patreon.com slash pushbacktalks or Follow us on social media at make underscore the shift and push underscore the film.